Faith in Letters, a podcast at the intersection of Christianity, the writing life, and the wide world of books. I'm your host, Ben Bishop. You'll be shocked to learn that I loved books as a young man, and growing up in my father's household, he, as a lover of books, had a great library that I would browse through, and the titles from which were just part of the the air I breathed. There were also books in the, you know, sort of in the air within the context of the evangelical world I was growing up in more broadly, at the churches that my dad was a pastor at, there were popular titles. So there were just books around, and books, sort of touchstone books, or books that were popular, which many of which I read and some of which I didn't even ever read, but whose titles I can recall. I'm thinking of books like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, Mere Christianity, of course, by C.S. Lewis, Philip Yancey's, books. Uh, My dad loved Henry Nouwen, so his work was around. One book with a wonderfully enigmatic title that was always around or sort of popping up, but the covers of which I never actually cracked, was a book called My Utmost for His Highest by someone named Oswald Chambers. And my interview today is with writer Macy Halford, whose book, My Utmost, a devotional memoir, essentially chronicles her lifelong relationship with My Utmost for His Highest. I say essentially because the book is a little bit difficult to classify. It's part memoir. It's also part biography of Chambers, and to some extent it's a travelogue. I enjoyed this conversation very much. Here's Macy Halford. Macy Halford, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So I just finished your book, read it over the last couple of weeks, um, My Utmost, a devotional memoir, which is about ostensibly about your relationship with the kind of classic 20th century Christian devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, by the Scottish preacher and writer uh, Oswald Chambers. And I want to talk about that book, and I, I think the, the best place to start is actually by talking about how you came to decide to write this book. There's a lot of backstory we can get into. You were um, raised in Texas, but working for The New Yorker at the time that you uh, kind of reflected on your desire to write the book and kind of launch that journey. People will probably be interested in that. We can get into that. We can talk a little bit about Chambers, of course, we will get into his bio, but I how did you decide of all the possible books that a talented young writer could write to write this book? Because it doesn't, to my mind, scan as like the, <laughs> the most obvious, uh, like the, the easiest elevator pitch to make. So, so just sort of start by taking me through the process of how the, the germ or the seed of, you know, I'm going to write a memoir about my relationship <laughs> with a stereotypically almost stuffy devotional memoir uh, came about and came to life. Yeah. Yeah. No, it doesn't scream bestseller, does it? The easiest answer is that I had, I had always wanted to write about my utmost for his highest since college, at least. I studied medieval theology in college at Barnard. And that was my first 
sort of um, real interaction with sort of the theological underpinnings of Christianity. And the first thing that hit me about it when I started studying that was that I had seen some of these ideas in really just in one place when I was growing up in a Southern Baptist church in Texas. And that was in this daily devotional, My Outmost Tour is Highest. So I, I had always found that really fascinating that these ideas would be in this book and that this book would be so beloved by the community that I grew up in, while um, a, lot of, a lot of other kind of intellectual and theology-heavy books were not embraced by that community. Um, and it was also just a really important book for my mother and my grandmother and um, because we three shared that, uh, I had wanted to write about it for that reason as well. Um, so that's kind of the, the most basic answer. But in terms of why I decided to do that for my first book, that was it was kind of the only idea I had that I felt really, really sure about. And also, I... I didn't have it in my mind that I was going to try to write a bestseller um, for my first book. Did you have a literary agent and or an editor, someone that you were essentially selling this idea to um, or having to convince of the, the worthiness of this idea? And how did, how did that come about and how did that go? You know, that was all really easy. I met with a bunch of different agents and well, at the time, you know, it really helps if you're already working in the industry. I was running the online book review book blog at the New Yorker and I was writing a lot. And, um, so I got meetings with tons of agents, but the agent I wound up with Zoe Pagnamenta, um, she actually was a longtime reader of my utmost. So I really lucked out because we just connected right away on it. Um, yeah, I didn't have to convince her at all. She just she was like, "Oh, great," you know. <laughs> yeah, it almost it almost comes across in reading your book like a kind of not a secret society, but like a you know like a lingua franca. There's like there's these expanding circles of people who you realize or come to realize like have heard of or have also read my utmost growing up. I didn't read it growing up, but had certainly heard of it, and I bought a copy of the book to sort of like read along with or kind of dip into while I was reading your book. And I, and I found it, I mean, I just found it really interesting. I had never personally read with any kind of regularity, like a daily devotional where the readings are, are very short and sort of um, info packed. And I grew up in kind of a, you know, classic late 20th century evangelical context, which is why I'd heard about the book. But I was really struck actually by, I guess, how difficult it might be a word, like how difficult he can be. There's a kind of austerity to his writing. And you, and you talk a lot about the style um, in your book, but there's kind of an evolution in his theology throughout his life, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit. But the contrast that I was actually struck by, just in terms of, you know, focusing on and kind of reading it through the lens of your book, was that in your book, and I more specifically in your reminiscences about, which were really evocative to me, actually, about your own childhood, there's this real thread of comfort and 
almost a coziness. You talk at length about like your 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 mothers and your grandmothers homes and their rooms and kind of these the book opens with these scenes of you being like in bed reading and reminiscing about your your mom and your grandma ending each day like reading this book. And there's just kind of this yeah, classic like mid-America vibe that was evoked for me that that um seemed then it, as I actually read the book to be kind of curious because he ha- he just has a, a, you know it's re- it's a recognizable thread I guess that I that I remember from certainly my own childhood but his his writing often in these entries will contain pretty stark almost like admonitions uh, along the lines of if you're not sure of God's call on your life, or if you're not certain you've heard it, then maybe you're not hearing it. Or maybe, you know, if you think that life is going to be easy, essentially, or that God's call is not going to be costly on your life, that that's, you know, maybe you're missing it. Maybe you're not getting it. And just somehow that somehow that struck me as a, as a contrast. And I think maybe to put it to you in the form of a question, which you address a little bit in the book, but should maybe just unpack a little bit here, if I remember right, I think you were like, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 when you first discovered the book. What do you think it was at at that time in your life um, being in a, a somewhat comfortable, I don't know, in, in the intellectual context as you reflect on it is obviously complicated with the Baptist church that you grow up in. But being in that kind of environment, um, what was it about this book that was that was attractive to you? Because I can imagine it having gone, having gone a different way and being kind of frightening almost. Yeah, I think it does frighten a lot of people away. I mean, he was definitely, he was a, a perfectionist and there's nothing, there's nothing easy about his theology at all. And he just, you know, everything, everything in utmost is very challenging. Um, I started reading it when I was 14 and I think that um, I really, I really was kind of looking for a challenge. I was very kind of driven and competitive kid. <laughs> and this is this is maybe not the most positive spin to put on it, but um I definitely felt that the challenges he posed and the way that he conceptualized of faith um were very they were very they were instantly inspiring to me. You know, to me, it's a book that's at heart, it's arguing for a bold, fearless faith, right? That should serve as the basis of a bold and fearless and exciting life. And I just loved that vision of presenting life as this grand journey that your your soul is going to be taking with God as long as you can um, rise to the challenge. Let's talk about Chambers a little bit. Uh, I found the context that you provide through your research into his own life journey very illuminating. He was born in 1874, died young in Egypt in 1917, and in between wasn't quite itinerant, but but moved around quite a bit. I don't think he actually returned to his native Scotland um, during the last 12 years of his life or something like that. So he starts out not as a not as a preacher or or teacher, but as an aspiring artist, a painter, you you go to Wheaton College, you dig into the archives there, um, you uncover all these all these details about him. Eventually, get a copy of I think it was actually his wife's journals. Um, and but I, the passage is about just his his own feeling about the kind of dovetailing of his artistic passion or or calling with these ideas about 
God's calling on the artist were were kind of amazing to me. Um, and I found myself thinking about, you know, any any aspiring young artist and certainly you as an aspiring writer at the time, um, maybe being really affected by that. You had already, if I'm reading it right, you know, kind of launched yourself on the project of writing this book. And you'd obviously um, been in love with the devotional for a long time, presumably before learning that. What was it like to kind of uncover those passages where he's talking about, you know, if you don't, if you deny essentially your artistic vision, then it's going to just fester inside of you and, and <laughs> yeah. it's going to kind of going to burn you. Were you as amazed as I was to learn that about him? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there were some quotes that sort of pointed to that in in utmost, and I had latched onto those, but I was really, it was really um, surprising to find out that he had been. Uh, yeah, this artist in his youth, and that actually, um, his struggles as a young person were very similar to mine to many people's because he grew up his father was um, also his father was a Baptist preacher. And he was a very stern kind of hell and damnation preacher, you know, no, no, like, love or light uh, in his preaching and he wanted Oswald to be a preacher and Oswald just wanted to do his painting. And from the time he was a very small child, they had this huge conflict. Um, so to discover that was really, was really something. And then he, he did, he, he, he had some success. He went to art college in Edinburgh and, uh, tried to make a go of it as an illustrator selling paintings and he just couldn't. And, you know, there's this heartbreaking moment in his life, in his journals, where he has to ask for help from his father to get him into a Bible college. And he's really like, he's basically starving at that point. And he goes to this Bible college, tiny Bible college in Danoon, Scotland. And he proceeds to fall into a horrible, like really almost suicidal depression for a few years. And, um, he's ter he's a terrible preacher. People are complaining. It's just a really dark time. So, um, yeah, that was amazing to learn all of that. And then to see also how he, how he turned one, you know, turned, uh, turned the corner and became the amazing preacher he, he became. You have a, a passage, um, about a third of the way through your book where you, you describe yourself as feeling, uh, worried that you'd be nothing if you hadn't got your job at the New Yorker. That's is the quote, or that quote, your writing wouldn't have gained a notice on its own. It sounds like you had a period, a period of maybe not suicidal depression, but just kind of you know, angst, confusion about your own your own path yeah. as an artist. How did that resolve, or has that resolved? I mean, those were fears I had right when I was trying to decide if I wanted to give up a really steady job in editorial that I'd had for almost eight years and just become a writer, you know? Um, so it was, it was definitely a struggle, but almost as soon as I did it, I was glad that I had done it, especially because I had already, um, sold a proposal for this book. So I had the project going and I really needed that time to work on it. And yeah, it, it was wonderful. Um, I mean, not that, you know, the process of writing your first book is harrowing for sure. I mean, there are dark moments, but, but thankfully I made it through. 
I want to talk about that process a little bit. But before we talk about um, just kind of how you laid out the book, how you structured it, what you decided to include and not include, what you decided to focus on and not focus on, we have to talk, if only briefly, about The New Yorker. It's the pinnacle. It's the, it's the, it's the fantasy that people who you know, think of themselves as educated and especially literate have of what it would be like to work at a, an amazing literary magazine. <laughs> you, you have an amazing story. Maybe I'll just let you tell it. How did you initially get uh, what was at first a part-time job as a co- in the copy editing department at The New Yorker? Oh, oh yeah. Well, I was, <laughs> I was a full-time nanny <laughs> in New York, and I had a friend from college who had been doing a little part-time nighttime proofreading gig at the New Yorker for a while. And she asked me if I wanted to step in. And I think it was only like once or for once or twice that I was supposed to step in. And, um, it just sort of miraculously turned into a full-time job. Um, yeah, (laughs) it was really, it was really lucky. So you then, you're then within a couple of weeks, I think, you're offered um, this amazing opportunity to be on the copy editing staff. What did that entail? Like, you, did you go into the New Yorker offices and regardless of where you did the work, like what, what were you actually doing on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis? Well, at first, I, I think for my first four years there, I was just in that copy editing pool, which you're just proofreading. I mean, you're just reading the New Yorker over and over and over again. And, you know, there's, there's, it's such a huge, there's a huge copy editing department and the, the people at the top of it are so, so good that, you know, I came in at at the very bottom, of course, and you're just really, you're just looking, you're, you're hoping to catch something, you know, you're hoping to catch like a word broken incorrectly at the end of a line or something like that. Because it's already been read so many times. Yeah. Oh, it's already been read by the time it comes to you quite a few times. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, starting even with, you know, starting with the writers and then their editors have already, you know, they kind of know the style, they know the house style and, and then the top copy editor will have read it. So, but you know, redundancy is extremely important. So you're like the, you're like the last defense against typos. Not the last, last, but yes. One, one, of the, one of the last, but, but really it's something incredible. I mean, it's like more than 20 pairs of eyes will have seen something by the time it goes to print there. It's not like any other place I've ever done, you know, proofreading or copy editing for. It's really incredible. Yeah. As somebody who's interested in long form journalism, I, I definitely have sort of through osmosis just over the interviews and stuff I've read over the years, um, that's that's in the water that that it's just sort of like on another level in terms of the number of people that they employ and the amount of work that goes into making sure that that the magazine is completely error free and I don't think I've ever personally caught a typo. I was actually looking uh, through the issue that came in the mail yesterday. They they exist because people send letters, handwritten letters, to let you know. So. <laughs> So you're there for a while. Then you you move from copy editing to, for at least some time towards the end, doing the online book blog. That sounds like any kind of reviewing-centric work at a publication that has presumably a lot of advanced reader copies and other stuff. You know, everybody wants to be reviewed there. It just sounds like an incomprehensible amount of reading that it would require. (laughs) How did you decide what books 
to review. How quickly oh, did you boy. read them? Was your life just like text 24-7? How did that go? Yeah, I read a lot. I read a lot, a lot. Um, oh, yeah, the, the how to decide what to review. When I first started, one of my very first jobs, in addition to proofreading, was helping to keep the the book closet. They had a closet full of books uh, that people would, all the different publishers would send in. Um, and so part of my job was going through and weeding out ones that might be appropriate and might not be appropriate for review. So I feel like I've devoted thousands of hours of my life to <laughs> deciding what's what could be interesting <laughs> for review and what what what's not. Um, but when it came time for the online books blog, we had suddenly, you know, just you, you kind of have infinite space on a website, of course, to review. Um, so it was just that was more about trying to find uh, people willing to write reviews. Okay, you're at the New Yorker, you're there for almost eight years. At some point, you decide you're going to write a book, a memoir of your own, and you sell the idea and, and you dive into that process. You're obviously central to the book. Oswald is central to the book. I'd say your, your grandma and to some extent your mom are central to the book. And then at the very end, we learn quite a bit about Oswald's wife, Biddy. There's also an enigmatic character uh, who you only ever refer to as the mountaineer. <laughs> <laughs> and who's, a, who's your romantic interest. How did you, at the beginning, you know, just kind of take us through the nuts and bolts process of how you kind of hammered out your first draft and how, how you, once you had this idea that you were confident in, how you actually sort of wrestled it onto the paper in, a, in the form of a story that would hold, you thought would hold people's attention, and it definitely held mine. So you know that, that you'll know from reading the book that one of Oswald's nicknames in his lifetime was the apostle of the haphazard because he, he had this whole idea about how the true nature of reality, um, is more chaotic than it is orderly. And the job of the, what he would call the saint or the, the true believer is to sort of give yourself over to God's chaos, um, in God's haphazard plan for your life. So I always kind of had this idea that the book would be slightly or very, maybe very unplanned, just kind of, I wanted it to be done um, sort of in real time as I was writing it. I wanted things to unfold in the book as they were unfolding for me, as I was doing my research, as I was thinking about things and as they were coming as you know, the 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 um, writings and utmost were um, were coming alive for me in that moment because, of course, one of the things about this daily devotional is that I had been reading it every single day for you know almost twenty years or something at that point. So um, yeah, I wanted it to just feel alive basically, um, and to kind of capture that spirit that, that Oswald had and that his, um, that I think my utmost for his highest has, which, you know, which does, if you, if you've just read it, you know, it does feel kind of haphazardly put together. So that was kind of the inspiration for it. Did it just kind of come out on the page and, and what I read 
is close to what you started with or did the book really evolve over no, time? No, that's a no, it evolved, you know, and there are a lot of um there are a lot of things that I that I ended up cutting out, you know, to try to make it hang together better in the end. What kind of stuff did you cut out? Can you share anything? Um, I think there were just sort of narrative arcs that didn't, I, I honestly, I cannot remember. It took me, it took me a few years to write the book. So yeah, whatever wasn't working just sort of got cut out, you know, as soon as I, as soon as I realized it and I stopped thinking about it. <laughs> I feel like we would be remiss if we, if we didn't at least touch on, on Biddy Chambers I think the one thing, this is Oswald's wife, I think the one thing that I had actually heard of before, or somehow in the ether of my brain before dipping into the book, uh, ever cracking its spine, was that it was in fact she who had not, not actually written the words that are in the book, but essentially created it by culling his reams of, of, of writing into these, you know, these snippets. And you, you talk a little bit about this process, but can you, can you explain the extent to which that is or is not an accurate depiction of how My Utmost for His Highest came into being? Mm-hmm. That's very accurate. Um, he, he, really, he really never, I mean, he wrote a few articles, he wrote some articles in his lifetime and he, sort of edited some of his sermons into one little book, but, or like helped her. But basically he produced, he would just, he would not even have notes for his sermons. He would just get up and he would talk for like an hour and Biddy or Gertrude was trained in shorthand and she would just take them all down and then she would type them up. And so the result of that, I mean, you can actually purchase that. There's like a collected works of Oswald Chambers, although I don't recommend it because it's like, it's like thousands of pages of just these verbatim long sermons that are not even, that he didn't even plan, you know? Uh, so yeah, she very much, you know, without her, nobody would have read a word he said. And she goes on to live uh, decades beyond him. They have a daughter who's, I think, two. Kathleen is maybe two when when her dad dies. You you talk about the the society or basically the the nonprofit that grows up around his work, and and most prominently, of course, they're sort of shepherding this devotional, which just becomes a huge bestseller. And it was it was poignant to read about how just firm. Biddy was on her her belief, her conviction that basically uh, certain financial realities had to remain in place. She, she didn't take a pay cut, and maybe ever or until the very end, from any of the royalties. She worked these other full-time jobs to support herself and her daughter, and then at the very end of her life, her daughter has to come in and basically demand that these, um, you know, the people who are sort of managing the literary estate give her money to pay for her mom's end-of-life medical care. It was just a, it was, it was really poignant, and it was also just kind of a striking coda to what was actually kind of this real thread of, of difficulty for, for both Oswald and Biddy's lives. I mean, they have, they just had fairly difficult lives. They, I don't know if they would be, you know, if you describe them as having lived in extreme poverty, but they, they didn't have much and they were really committed to their ideals. Um, that's, 
you know, the decades that she lived as a widow committed to this ideal of preserving her husband's writing and kind of carrying on that work were, were really striking to me. Yeah. And she, you know, but she really chose, this was definitely a choice for her that, I mean, she was just incredibly devout in her belief that these books were um, a ministry and that they should be nonprofit. You know, she, they did provide her with a house. You know, I think the foundation had a house that um, she lived in with her daughter, Kathleen, but she just would never take, yeah, I mean, she just never wanted to take any money for herself, you know, um, and Kathleen didn't either. So it, it's really remarkable. Um, Oswald's life was very, yeah, I think it was a struggle um, to make ends meet, you know, really until up until his death. Um, and of course, he died in Egypt in an army camp there. And before that, they were running, he and Biddy were running a small Bible college in London that, you know, was having trouble keeping the doors open. So yeah, he sort of, he never got to see the fruits of his labors and, and Biddy could have, but she just, yeah, she just didn't, you know, she didn't take any of those riches for herself. Well, I, I kind of want to close maybe by asking you a little bit about this theme of who you reveal your interest in this book to, and by extension, who you're, who you're able, specifically once you've moved to New York and kind of launched out of the nest of this somewhat conservative Southern Baptist upbringing, uh, about your faith with, who you can, who you can admit that you're a sort of a, a serious, non-ironic Christian too. And that's that, you know, there's like various scenes where you're talking with an acquaintance at this really ritzy book party and, and you're telling him about my utmost. And he's like, and you, I think you reveal to him that it's like also George W. Bush's favorite book. And he's like, ah, oh, you might want to, you might want to keep that to yourself. I don't know if you want to go sharing that with a lot of people. Yeah. How has that journey gone for you in the intervening, you know, decade or, or so since that story took place? You know, um, I mean, that was really, I, I did always want to write about my utmost for his highest, but I was really interested in exploring this kind of cultural divide in America and figuring out um, how I could exist on both sides of it. You know, and I know that's something that, you know, so many people, I, dare I say, like most people in America, they, they, you know, they've encountered this in one way or another, either themselves in their life or with some member of their family. It's always like a negotiation. It's always, there's never a clear cut answer. You know, we don't, I don't exist in one category and it's hard to, you know, it's still, it's still challenging to navigate. In France, it's very different. You know, I, I could write another book on how it's different in France than in America, because first of all, the cultural divide I struggled with in America for the first 30 years of my life doesn't, you know, people here just sort of nod politely at that if I, if I talk about that. Which specific um, divide are you referencing there? Well, I mean, I really went from fundamentalist, like a very fundamentalist Southern Baptist um, family into a very, very liberal and, you know, it's not that everyone inside it was an atheist, but definitely like secular and not, um, you know, not religious <laughs> feeling at least. 
um, I went into that world in college. I went to I went to Barnard for college, which is incredibly, incredibly <laughs> liberal. So that's the cultural divide uh, that I that I had to keep trying to navigate all through my twenties, uh, working at the New Yorker, which is not a publication that you know anyone in my family would ever want to read. Um, or that they would respect or think that, you know, think it has the truth inside of it. So that, you know, I, I did, I did always want to write about that. And I chose to focus on Upmost because it was this one kind of bridge, this one kind of intellectual bridge that I had that I still shared with my family. So now I, I kind of lucked out because my husband's family are, they're kind of, um, you un, not unique, but they're, they're strong Protestants, French Protestants, which, um, you know, that is, that is kind of unusual. So, and they actually, you know, my mother-in-law loves it because she, she can't really talk. She says she can't talk to her own children about religion. They get too freaked out, but you know, she can talk to me. So that's kind of amusing. You know, you never know what you're going to encounter. (laughs) Yeah. Childhood is such a big, thing that I took away from this book, how formative it is and how it shapes our imagination and our attachments. And I felt it, it just seemed it was very evocative. We didn't talk at all about any of the passages where you're like, you know, interacting with your high school drama teacher or any of that stuff. There's so much in the book. I've got to leave some of it for people to discover on their own. Um, I just really enjoyed it. I appreciated it. And I hope other people get a chance to check it out, too. Thank thank you so much. much. Yeah, for your time coming on the show. I hope we'll be seeing more of you and be looking forward to this new novel if and when it ever comes out. Thank you so much, Macy, for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. In listening back through this interview, I am struck by how much we just didn't have time to get to, which is as it should be in many ways just no way to fully unpack a good book in a single interview. So if you're interested in Oswald Chambers and his life, I cannot recommend Macy's book highly enough. It's very well written, very well researched. Do take time to check it out. Thanks again to Macy, and until next week, stay safe, keep reading, and call your mom.